Our scripture reader is Jeff Heidloff. Uh, in honor of God's word, please stand. Good morning. Listen as I read. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what we will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brother, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites, for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Then Joseph could not control himself because all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of the Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Long one. And now, do not be distressed or angry with our, yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so, so you heard the passage read. It's a long passage uh, from Genesis 37 and then into Genesis 45. Um, and and it's, it's the story, uh, the, the front end of the story of Joseph. And, and the reason we're in this text is because we're in a series called The Story of Stories. And, and the goal of this series is to trace uh, this, this grand story, uh, the, 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 to recognize that the Bible... Uh, it has all of these individual characters, it has all of these stories, uh, some of these stories you might be familiar with, but they're all working together uh, to reveal to us this grand story, this grand narrative uh, of, of the world. Uh, along the way, uh, we are occasionally hearing stories from, uh, that are real-time. So our sermons are based on the stories from the pages of the Bible, uh, but, but several weeks where we've seen stories from individual sojourners or, or families in our church uh, who are expressing uh, the rec recognition of how God is at work uh, in their life right now. And uh, there will not be a video story today, but there will be a story next week, and I, I really hope that you're, you're here for it. Um, there's uh, three that have been recorded, and uh, we're, we're, I'm really excited for you to hear uh, all three of those as they uh, get released in the Sundays ahead. But today we're going to focus our time on, on Joseph, and this, uh, this, this, uh, a lot of it here in chapter 37, and this uh, kind of the front end, how we get introduced 
uh, to who Joseph is. So we've been tracing this grand story of how God is going to rescue the world. And if you've been around for these sermons, you know, right off the bat, in Genesis chapter 3, so Genesis 1 and 2, God has created this beautiful world. It's perfect. Uh, the crown of his creation is, is humanity, Adam and Eve, and they walk with God in perfect unity. Everything is right. The Hebrew word shalom, which a lot of us associate with that word peace, and that's right. It, it does mean peace. Uh, but the Hebrew idea of shalom is so much broader than maybe our natural thoughts uh, in regard to peace. It means that everything's right that everything works right, that every single relationship was, 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 uh, was functioning as it should. And that was the condition in the garden. And then in Genesis 3, uh, sin, sin breaks into the scene. And when sin breaks into the scene, everything gets broken. Everything goes bad. And as God sits with Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were the ones who did it, they chose to reject God's good way. They chose to rebel against his good design. And God sits with them, and, and he, he says to, to Adam and Eve, like, the, the consequences are going to be worse than you could imagine. It's, it's going to get really, really bad uh, on the earth. Uh, God uses the, term, the word death, and death just, it, it's inferring this idea of separation, and the most severe reality of that separation is the separation between humanity and God. But it's going to be separation everywhere. Separation between humanity and God, but separation between humans, separation within our own selves, separation from us and creation, separation everywhere. Death brings, or sin brings death, and death is separation. But in the middle of all that, God whispers this little promise, this little hint in Genesis 3.15, and he says that the offspring of Eve is going to crush Satan. It's going to crush his head. And it's this little whisper. Uh, some theologians refer to it as the first gospel, the first hint of good news, that God is going to fix this. He's going to, from the seed of Eve, crush Satan. Well, we started to trace that story. Well, okay, the offspring of Eve, which of her sons is going to be the one? Well, as these chapters of Genesis have unfolded, we've seen that it is a precarious journey. And the seed of Eve, the offspring of Eve, are constantly under threat, uh, constantly in danger of being wiped out. Uh, the, the, her, her original sons, Cain and Abel, Abel is murdered, Cain is cursed. Uh, a few chapters later, the world is turned so wicked, God says, I'm just going to blot the whole thing out, wipe the whole thing out. But if he does that, then what does he also wipe out? He wipes out all the offspring of Eve. So instead, God keeps Noah, preserves one man of the line of Eve, keeps him and his family alive, and in doing that, keeps his promise. And we just see it time and time again throughout these chapters of Genesis, God keeping his promise to keep the offspring of Eve, that line, that sacred line, keeping it alive. Well, uh, there, eventually, in Genesis 12, we find out that God's going to do this through a specific family. And he grabs a guy named Abraham. Uh, originally, his name's Abram. Eventually, he changes his name to Abraham. He says, you're my guy. And I'm going to work through you. And I'm going to go into covenant with you. I'm going to make this incredible promise to you uh, that, that it's going to be through your family that the whole world is going to be blessed. So from Eve to Abraham, and now Abraham's seed is going to be this, this chosen line that God is going to be at work through. Abraham eventually has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And now Jacob has at least, he has at least 12. He has 12 sons that we know of. He may have had more children. Uh, but Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons. Um, 
Now, now Joseph is 11 out of 12, so he is at the bottom you know, of the order, um, and he may have been kind of annoying. Um, and if you have younger siblings, you might be able to relate to this. Um, there's some indications that, that Joseph uh, didn't have a good sense of the room, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, the way that he engaged conversations and the way that he said things apparently didn't sit real well with a lot of the people around him. And I have two younger siblings, so I know a little bit uh, about this. Um, but in, in, the, uh, in the first verses of chapter 37 of Genesis, um, you see some of the interactions with Joseph and his brothers. And they're just, they're, they're, like the brothers receive them as super annoying. Um, jo- Joseph is the father's favorite. It has to do with the fact that, that Jacob has a couple wives, and the, the wife that Joseph is born to is kind of his dad's favorite, which leads to him being his dad's favorite son. Uh, he makes his, uh, Jacob makes Joseph this special coat. Doesn't make it for any of his other sons, but he makes it for Joseph. And you know how that that, that, you know how that goes. That's, that's received you know, real well by the other siblings. Um, and then Joseph, he's a dreamer. And, and, and he has these, these visions of, of the future. And um, you know, I, I have a tendency to be a little bit of a dreamer myself. And sometimes I talk about these, these ideas or these dreams for the future, and I talk about them way too soon or way too often. And it can be unhelpful. It can be unhelpful for our leadership team here at church. It can be unhelpful for my family at my house. But I, I have this sense of like looking to the future and dreaming big dreams and, and ideas about how things could happen or things that we could pursue. And, and Joseph was a dreamer. But Joseph also was quite vocal about his dreams. And some of his dreams, uh, the way they hit his brothers, it didn't go well. In verse 5 of chapter 37, they heard his dream. And it says it made them hate him even more. So it wasn't the dream that made them hate him. They already hated Joseph. But then they hear the dream and they hate him uh, even more. Uh, And you might say, well, what was that dream? Well, again, they already hated him. The dream just amplified things. Uh, But the dream was that Joseph would rule over them. That all of the brothers and his father, they would all come and bow down at his feet. They they uh, They would, in a sense, worship him. And so you could see how, how, that, would, how that would go over with uh, 10 older brothers. Um, and so it, it, this is a little bit of the dynamic, the family dynamic that's going on. We all have families of origin, and uh, Joseph's, uh, you know, Joseph's family had their own dynamics going. Well, Jacob, at some point in time here, decides to send Joseph out to find his brothers. Uh, they were off with the flocks. They were shepherds. And so in verse 12 of chapter 37, uh, we see that he goes... Um, uh, he goes in search of his brothers, and he goes from Hebron to Shechem, uh, and they're not there. He runs into somebody. He says, oh, I saw your brothers. They moved on uh, to Dothan. And so he goes and um, goes up to Dothan and finds them. And uh, apparently that's about 65 miles from Hebron all the way to, uh, to Dothan. It's about 65 miles. So in that day without cars and, and you know, the, the difficulties of transportation, that's not a small, it's not a small journey. Uh, but eventually... Uh, he finds, he finds his, his brothers. And as you get to verse 18, it says, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against, to, uh, against him to kill him. So you, you can see that this has bubbled over uh, to a pretty intense level. Um, and uh, they, they see him coming across the fields, 
and uh, they, they recognize it's him. Maybe it's because, you know, apparently he's wearing this multicolored, you know, fancy coat uh, that his dad made for him. And, you know, you know, it's, you know just, just put yourself in the older sibling's shoes for a minute. And you see your little brother trotting across the fields in his fancy coat coming to see you. And you, you, they hate him. They hate him. And so they actually start the conversation. You know, which brother started it? Who knows? But they start the conversation of like, this is our chance. We're 65 miles from home. Like, I am sick and tired of this kid. Like, let's, let's wipe him out. And so that's, that's where their heads go. But they're not all on the same page. There's a lot of brothers. So as they start to talk about it, some do want him dead. Verses 18 through 20 show us that. Some don't want anything like really bad to happen. Maybe just kind of scare him a little bit. That seems to be where Reuben is. Reuben's like, guys, let's, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. Like, let's just do that, you know, and scare him, you know, scare him a little bit. Maybe we'll stop with these dreams. Um, and then, uh, you know, maybe some just want, want him gone, which is, seems like maybe his brother Judah is of that mentality. So in the end, they take Reuben's advice. They throw him in a pit. But when Reuben's not looking, uh, they grab Joseph out of the pit uh, because there had been some merchants, some traders uh, that were headed to Egypt. And uh, the brothers uh, apparently thought, let's not tell Reuben, but this, is, this, this solves everything. We don't kill him, but he's not just in a pit, like he's gone. And you know, we find out that Reuben's plan was actually to get him out of the pit and bring him home. And so maybe they knew that, that was the case too, but whatever the case, uh, they get him out of the pit and they sell him <clears throat> to these traders, to these merchants uh, who are on their way to Egypt. So instead of killing him, they decide to fake his death. And they take that coat, and I just imagine the joy that they had in tearing that coat to shreds. Uh, and then they killed an animal. They dipped that coat in the blood of that animal. And then they, bring, they, you know, they get that coat back to dad. And they say to their dad, you know, it's just so tragic. Like uh, a wild animal came out of nowhere and killed, killed Joseph. And you know, here's, here's the evidence. His coat's been torn, and it's covered in blood, and uh, he, he, is, he is no more. And it, 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 breaks, it breaks, Jacob's, uh, breaks Jacob's heart. Well, let, let me ask you, what, what, what do you think that Joseph did while he was sitting in that pit? We, we know that he was distraught. If you hop to chapter 42, uh, in uh, verse 21 of chapter 42, uh, I think it's Reuben that's talking. And he says, we saw the distress in his soul. We saw that how distressed he was when he was in that pit, when he begged us. And we did not listen. And so he certainly was in the pit asking them not to do this. He was certainly in the pit uh, distraught. He was definitely in distress, scared, asking his brothers to, to stop. You know, stop, stop doing this. Um, but, but remember who they are. So y- y- yes, he's crying out to his brothers. But this is the family This is the family that the God of heaven came to back in Genesis 12 and said, you're you're my family. I'm going to be in a special relationship with you. And then God, Abraham has has a son named Isaac and Isaac has a son named Jacob. And that language is common in Christian thought. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like that that is common language in in, in the Old Testament or in Jewish thought. They look back at those those Jewish, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were the men that God was working through to keep his promise. 
And these men were, were teaching their children the ways of the God of heaven. And they certainly were not perfect. I mean, they were a messy family. But they were the family that the God of heaven was in covenant with. They worshiped the God of heaven. Don't you think that Joseph, in this pit, prayed to the God of heaven while he was stuck down there? It would be the most logical thing for him to pray to the God that is in covenant with his family. When he's in the bottom of that pit and he overhears his brothers arguing about whether they should kill him or not, as, they, as he hears them, you know, uh, he gets pulled out of the pit only to find out that they've not decided to just pull him out of the pit. They decided to pull him out of the pit to sell him into slavery. You, you don't think that in the sequence of those events that, that Joseph was not just crying out to his brothers, but he was crying out to the God of heaven? I, I think it's, the, it's, it's an assumption, but boy, do I think it's right. It would have been the logical response of Joseph in that pit. And as he's in that pit and imagining this reality of crying out to his brothers for this to stop, crying out to the God of heaven for this to stop, yet God, God does nothing. God, God does nothing as Joseph's brothers consider killing him. God does nothing as his brothers uh, sell him into slavery. God is silent. God does nothing at all. Have you been there? Have you been at that place where you, you needed real help and your experience in that moment is that God did not do anything at all? Maybe that's your situation right now. Maybe there's something that comes to your mind right now and you are saying, yeah, I know the feeling. I'm, I'm waiting on God right now. I'm in my figurative pit right now. And I am in desperate need of the God of heaven to do something. I'm, I've been waiting on him, and he is silent. You know, we, we live in a, in a time in our Christian culture where a lot of people are afraid to, to bring, um, to bring this, this, this reality up, to, to bring up this sense of lament or complaint, that we're afraid to bring it up to each other. We're afraid to bring it up to God. We're afraid that we might be violating some, you know, expectation of patience or some expectation of trust. And, and so instead, we, we try to stuff all those emotions instead of actually talking with each other and talking with God about the fact that it feels like he is not doing anything. The fact that he is silent. Have you noticed that Lament is often absent in a lot of worship services in our culture. T typically, I, my experience, we just went on vacation and went to two different churches. You know, my, my experience of church in, in America is often happy church. That what we want to come to do is just come lift my spirits. Come just talk about the positive stuff. You know, give me a shot in the arm. Let's have a little pep rally. Let's just talk about the good stuff. And, and that, that might be a little bit of a tell that we're not quite sure what to do when it seems like God fails us. We might be actually afraid to talk about our complaints. Well, if you feel that God is silent, you're actually in good company. We, get, we got Joseph here, uh, but just to name a few others, Job. Job goes through, he's a character in the Bible. There's a whole book that tells his story. He goes through incredible suffering. And often feels like God is just letting stuff fall on him, just letting stuff happen. 
and not intervening. Jonah and Jonah's story and the way that Jonah interacts with God and some of it is on Jonah's plate and Jonah's own rebellion. David, the Psalms are full of this kind of language. Uh, Listen to Psalm 13. How how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I mean, that is, that is David coming to God and saying, I, don't, I can't explain this. You're, you're doing nothing and it looks like my enemies are winning. You're doing nothing while this all falls apart. And I've asked and I've asked and you're not doing anything. You know, the theologian J.I. Packer, he actually says that when you go back in history and you read Christian literature, older Christian literature, it's quite common for authors to reference arguing with God. And J.I. Packer says that when they use that phrase, arguing with God, they don't just mean that they're stubborn, spoiled little kids who are stomping their feet saying, I want my way. What he means is, is that there used to be a practice that was much more prevalent where you would actually list out before God the theological reasoning as to why you think what you're asking is good. That you've actually spent the time to consider the fact that what I'm asking you is in line with what you want for the world. Everything about what I'm asking you seems like it makes sense to me. It's something that you should be about. It's not, you know, why didn't I win the lottery? It's, it's, it's these, these thoughtful uh, arguments that you've put together and laid them before God and genuinely said, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? The, the thing I'm asking you for sure seems to me like it's in line with what you want to do in the world. And yet God is silent. You know, why, why is God so silent? Why, why, why do we have those moments? Well, there there is a ton of thoughtful explanations. There's books written on this. I have a book in my office called God on Mute. And uh, it's a discussion of what to do when you pray and you don't feel like there's any any response. Uh, Tim Keller, my my favorite favorite author, favorite pastor, he's written on this at length. And so there's a lot of explanations that have been offered to try to make sense of God's silence, especially in our suffering. But one of my other favorite authors, Tim Chester, you know, he says, there's all these explanations out there, and some of them are really, really helpful. He says this, though. They often work in the classroom, but they shatter too easily when on our knees we hear only the echo of our own voice. And there's something about that quote that resonated with me, where it's like, I, I think that it's right and good for me to be able to, to process or to, to spend some time digesting why it might be that God is silent. But I also, I resonate with Tim Chester, that a lot of that stuff shatters pretty easily when I'm in the middle of that suffering, when I'm in the middle of that hard spot, and it feels like all I'm hearing is the echo of my own voice. All I'm hearing, what it seems like, there's a, a ceiling, a brass ceiling, and my prayers are going nowhere. You know, the silence of heaven uh, is excruciating to experience. And yet, look at what happens. 
From Genesis 37 through Genesis 45, those seven or eight chapters, boy, they reveal this, this, grand, this grand story. We, we find out, and I, you know, this is seven or eight chapters, so, so bear with me here, but we, we find out that, that, that uh, Joseph is, is sold into slavery. He does end up in Egypt. He ends up getting imprisoned in Egypt, and he goes through all of these dramatic uh, situations. Uh, he doesn't stop dreaming. He continues to receive visions uh, from, from the God of heaven, and he is able to uh, speak into some really significant situations. And being able to speak into those situations gets him in a situation where he is actually uh, working for Pharaoh. He gets out of prison, and he is, uh, ends up as second in command in, in Egypt. Pharaoh is the only guy more powerful uh, than, than Joseph. And so Joseph goes through this dark valley of thinking that his brothers are going to kill him and then being sold into slavery and then being falsely accused and put in prison and then being forgotten in prison for a long time and then being brought out of prison and ending up as second in, in charge, second, uh, second in charge in the, in the country, uh, in, in Egypt. During that same uh, uh, discussion, we find out that a severe and, and, and deadly drought was coming to the whole Mid Middle Eastern region. And this drought was going to be really, really bad. And one of Joseph's visions gives him this forethought, this, this ability to look ahead and say, if we prepare now, we can be ready for that drought. And so being second in charge, he was in the position to be able to make that happen. And that's exactly what he does. He, he prepares the nation of Egypt for this drought that no one else could see coming. As Joseph looks through his, his life, he, he can see that though all of his brothers, you know, through all of that wicked betrayal, that wicked mistreatment, that God had moved Jake, uh, Joseph into a seat that would allow him to foresee this drought and to actually be able to take action and do something about it, to implement a plan that would provide food, that would actually rescue the nation of, of Egypt. But here's what's beautiful. As you read those chapters, you find out that Joseph's family, Jacob and his sons, are running out of food. And the indication is that they're going to starve to death if they don't do something. And so they end up coming to Egypt. And they don't know whatever happened to Joseph. But they come to Egypt for food, for sustenance, for, for, for a rescue. And as Joseph considers his own story, and he looks at the reality of how God has, has orchestrated all of these events to put him in that seat so that he could be in the place to foresee the drought and actually take action to change the course of history so that they would have the food to survive, not only did that cause him to save the people of Egypt, but it caused him to actually be able to preserve his own family. Who is his family again? Who is, who is Joseph's family? It's the family that God said, these are my people. This is the line that I'm going to preserve. This is the line from which the one will come who will eventually conquer Satan. That little promise back in Genesis 3.15 is going to be fulfilled through Jacob's sons. And now here we have Joseph providing the food to keep those sons alive. To keep the seed, the offspring of Eve, the lineage alive. Do you see? God, God was absolutely at work in the darkest moments of Joseph's young life. 
You know, in fact, the, 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 in the book of Acts, uh, there's a, a guy named Stephen, and, and uh, he, he preaches this, this killer sermon, and it actually really was a killer sermon. He, he, he was killed because of, because of the sermon that he preached. But during that sermon, he, he retells the story of Israel in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And as he retells the story, he references this. He looks back, and as, as Stephen looks back at the whole story of Israel, he looks back and he reaches back and he picks up this story. And you know what Stephen says about Joseph getting sold to these merchants? He says, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. That's Acts 7, verse 9. Stephen looks in the rearview mirror, and he looks at the story of Israel, and one of the highlights is that even though his brothers were jealous of him and they sold him into slavery, guess what? It may have felt like Joseph was alone, but Stephen says God was with him. Joseph actually wasn't alone. And that's not just Stephen pasting on some future view. Joseph agrees with Stephen's take. By Genesis 45, Joseph is able to process his whole difficult life in light of God's work in the world. All Joseph's trauma, this is what, this is what Joseph is able to see. By chapter 45, he is looking in the rearview mirror of his life, and he realizes that all of the trauma that he experienced resulted in preserving the line of Eve so that the offspring of Eve could crush Satan. He actually looks at this and recognizes that God, though his brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good. That God was at work in the world to preserve his family. And Joseph is able to, to, to say those things out loud. Having gone through all of the crap that he went through, through all of the hardship, through all of the junk, and yet he is able to look at these brothers who mistreated him, who sold him into slavery, who wanted him dead. And he's actually able to say, what you did was wicked. There's no getting around it, brothers. What you did was wrong. You meant it for evil, and it was evil. But guess what? The God of heaven is bigger than you. And the God of heaven is at work in this situation to, to keep his promises. So the question is this. Do you believe that God could be at work in your story like that? Do you believe it's possible that God could be at work in your story in the same way that he's at work in the, he was at work in the story of Joseph? Even through the hardest of times, even through the worst of tragedies, even through the silence of God, even if you never actually see it. You know, you're probably never going to get to see it as clearly as Joseph got to see it. There's this incredible passage in Hebrews chapter 11 where uh, the writer of Hebrews is, is, is uh, referencing all of these people who walked in faith and they trusted God with, with like looking forward and saying, we believe that he's going to keep his promises. And they stepped out in faith and the writer of Hebrews says, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal to see these people. Jesus hadn't come yet. And all of these people just believing that God would keep his promise. And then you get down to verse 32, and this is what it says. This is what the author of Hebrews says. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, 
Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Ready for this? Of whom the world was not worthy. And he says that these people were wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. In other words, God's timeline for keeping the promise didn't happen during their life. They followed God in faith, and they went through the deep end of the pool, man. They went through incredible trials and hardships, and they died not receiving the promise. God's timeline was different than their life timeline. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, the world's not worthy of that. This, this is the work of God in the hearts of his people, that they stick with it through the, through the thick and the thin, through the good and the bad, through the tragic they actually believe that God might just be at work in their life and in this world to keep his promises. There was a long time, apparently, in the story of Joseph where he did not know what God was doing. But man, there is really good evidence that he never gave up on God, even when things looked so terrible. I want you to notice something. Back in Genesis 37, remember he couldn't find his brothers in Shechem? And so he, he's told, hey, I think they went up to Dothan. And Joseph goes from Shechem up to Dothan. You know, there's only one other time in the Bible that Dothan is mentioned. Uh, so this time where Joseph is thrown into the pit and sold into slavery. The second time is in 2 Kings chapter 6. And this is a story where one of the great prophets, his name's Elisha, he has a servant with him and they, like, apparently they're alone and he's being hunted. Elisha is being hunted. Like they, they want to kill. The enemies want to kill him. And they end up getting surrounded. And it's Elisha and his servant. And they are surrounded by the enemy, by the army. And his servant starts to freak out. And there they are in Dothan, surrounded by this army. And Elisha prays. And he says to God, the God of heaven, God, would, would, would you let my servant see what I can see? Would you, would you open his eyes to the reality of the situation? And his servant comes out of the tent and looks out there again. And he sees the army surrounding them. But he sees a heavenly army surrounding the other army. He sees an army of angel warriors surrounding the army that's there to kill Elisha. And all of a sudden... Now, now he's bold and confident. Now all of a sudden, Elisha's servant is ready to roll because his eyes were open to the reality of the situation. And sure enough, Elisha and his, and his servant are preserved. Now, you, you, you look at that situation, and boy, is that not incredible? Elisha prays, and God sends an army of angels that apparently were on fire 
Like, it just keeps getting better. It's this glorious heavenly army that comes and encircles the army that's there to kill God's prophet. Incredible response to that prayer. Absolutely incredible. But you know what the whole story of Joseph tells us? The whole story of Joseph tells us that God was at work just as much in his silence to Joseph in that pit in Dothan as he was in response to Elisha's prayer with the glorious angel army. That in both situations, God was at work in incredible ways. One, I vote for number, I vote for option two. I vote for 2 Kings 6, where the army of, of warrior angels shows up. But sometimes it's option one. Sometimes the way that God's at work in the world feels like he's quit on you. Feels like his silence is him abandoning you. But you know, there was another time when God's silence resulted in an even greater outcome. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed for deliverance, and God the Father was silent. Jesus cries out to the Father, and he says, could, could this be done without me having to go to the cross? And just like in that pit in Dothan, heaven was silent. And Jesus went to that cross, and Jesus died. Let, let me close with this quote from a kind of a quirky theologian, a German theologian named Jürgen Moltmann. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind me, but this is what he says, kind of relating to this prayer of Jesus seeming to be ignored. Anyone who suffers without cause first thinks he has been forsaken by God. God seems to him to be mysterious, incomprehensible God who destroys the good fortune that he gave. But anyone who cries out to God in this suffering echoes the death cry of the dying Christ, the Son of God. In that case, God is not just a hidden someone over against him to whom he cries, but in a profound sense, the human God who cries with him and intercedes for him. But what this theologian is trying to say is that if we recognize that any time we are crying out to God in desperation and we feel like heaven is silent, there, there's actually a sharing in the suffering of Christ. There's actually a sense in which it's like, oh no, there's one who went before us that's gone, that's experienced this. There's one who went before us who prayed and didn't have his prayer answered. And now we actually realize this God is with us that this God cries with us, that he intercedes for us, that he took on human flesh and he dwelt here. But is it just empathy? Is that all we get? Is that, oh good, Jesus knows what it's like. Is that it? No, it, it's, it's true that heaven was silent when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. But a few, late, a few days later, Jesus rose again. Jesus rose from the grave. See, while Joseph's sacrifice resulted in saving one family and one nation, the nation of Egypt, Jesus' sacrifice resulted in a way of salvation for everyone. Joseph offered physical rescue through grain. Jesus offers eternal rescue through his body and blood. You see, that same theologian, Moltmann, goes on. This is what he says. Without the resurrection... The cross really is quite simply a tragedy and nothing more than that. If all the cross does is says Jesus knows what it's like to suffer, boy, that doesn't go very far. 
But what if Jesus actually rose again? And when he did, he proved that it's all true. That the offspring of Eve actually really did conquer death and sin and Satan and all of our enemies. See, the resurrection is God's promise of liberation from suffering for all who have run to Christ by faith. And that is why we go to the table every single Sunday. That is where our hope lies. As we take this bread and we drink this cup, we are reminded that Jesus went to the cross and his body was broken and his blood was spilled and he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again and conquered all of our enemies, including Satan. If you've trusted Christ, the man, we invite you to come up the center aisle, grab the elements, and remember again what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you've not trusted Christ to rescue you, man, we say instead of coming up here and getting the elements, stay where you're at and receive Christ. Call out to him and ask him to, to rescue you in the only way that matters. That there will be some prayers uh, on the screen behind me. They're also in your bulletin. Uh, we'll have some music playing. And we invite you to, to have, have a conversation with this God of heaven who loves you so much that he came and took on a human body, died in your place to bring you back to himself. If our service would please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this, uh, this story of, of Joseph, for this crazy, uh, these crazy details of betrayal by his brothers, of silence uh, on, uh, from heaven, for uh, a journey into uh, prison and hardship and suffering, only to eventually be used to keep the promise, to keep the seed alive, to keep that, that lineage that would lead to the one Christ, the one true Savior of the world. God, we thank you that because of what Christ has done on our behalf, we can actually have confidence that when our life on this earth ends, that even if we die not fully understanding the details of our story, that we can die knowing uh, what you have won for us, life with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.